wanted to speak this morning about the book of Job, which is um, uh, a book of poetry. And uh, there's a lot in the book of Job. You could spend a lifetime uh, reading and meditating on it. Um, I would certainly encourage everybody to, to read it for themselves. What I'd like to do this morning, however, is talk um, about the overall narrative of Job. And this is obviously leaving a lot out. But one of the things that I think is interesting about the book of Job is that it's a single narrative. Many books of the Bible have many different stories in them. But there's really in Job, there's one story. Um, and I think that there's something to be gained from trying to, or from, from uh, going over the narrative structure of that one story and trying to grasp it in one sitting. I think there's also a lot to be gained from meditating on the many uh, beautiful verses. Um, so again, this is going to leave a lot out, uh, but what I'm hoping today is that we can go through the overall story. And uh, another thing that's interesting about the book of Job is that it's kind of a classical narrative. It's something that we can understand uh, in the way that we understand other types of narrative stories. It's, it's, it fits a familiar structure. Uh, it starts out with a status quo, with the, the way things are, uh, and then there is a conflict and there's a resolution. Uh, it fits with you know, many Hollywood movies in that way. And there's actually a, a Hollywood-style ending, although, of course, this is long before Hollywood, so I guess Hollywood has a Job-style ending at the many, end of a lot of its movies. But um, to begin with, the status quo in the book of Job is that Job is rich in family and possessions. And not only that, he is perfect and upright one that feared God and eschewed evil. And this is the first verse of the first chapter, that he was perfect and upright. And he had seven sons and three daughters. He had many thousands of sheep, thousands of camels, hundreds of oxen. He had many things. He was a rich man. He was well-blessed in things and in children. And God sees that he's perfect and upright. He says so. If you look at chapter 1, uh, verse 8, God says to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Satan says that's only because of your blessings. In verse 11, he says, Put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he'll curse thee to thy face. And the Lord allows Satan to touch all that Job has. And Satan takes everything. If, if you read to the end of this first chapter, Satan takes his things, his animals, and takes his sons. All of the things that he has. Satan is not allowed to touch Job himself at this time. 
but he takes everything that he has. And Job's reaction to that is not to curse God, as Satan suggested. In verse 20 of that first chapter, we learn that Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head. So it's not that these things, these tragedies happened and Job isn't upset or sad. He rent his mantle and shaved his head. But then he fell down upon the ground and worshipped. So despite this hardship, Job still worships God. And in doing so, at the, the very last verse of this chapter, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So he remains upright. And in fact, we know that he remains upright because God says so again. In chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord says again to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? So nothing has changed here in terms of Job's righteousness, his uprightness. He still remains a perfect and upright man despite the fact that Satan has taken everything that he has. Uh, Satan's response to God is, uh, what I, I should say, that, that God recognizes that Job has maintained his integrity even though he has had his things taken from him without cause. It says there in, in uh, verse 3 of chapter 2, He holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Satan's response is, well, he will uh, change his tune if you let me touch him bodily, let me touch his health. Verse 5, put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord allowed Satan to do this. So in verse 7, Satan went, uh, went, so went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. So now Job has lost everything, and he's also lost his health. And here's where we start to meet some of the other characters in this story. The first character is Job's wife. And this is her only speaking role in the, in the story. And it's not very encouraging. Uh, Job is covered with boils, and his wife, in verse 9, said unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Which is, to me, seems very unencouraging. Um, but Job still perseveres. He says, Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? So in other words, if we're receiving good things at God's hand, we must also receive troubles. And in all this, the, the verse tells us, did not Job sin with his lips? So he maintains his uprightness. 
And at this point, we meet some of the other characters. We've met Joe, we met his wife, who doesn't appear again after that uh, statement. Um, now we're going to meet his three friends, who are not very encouraging either. There's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They're his friends, they heard about Job's troubles, and they came to visit Job so that they could mourn with him and comfort him. That's, that's the reason that they're going to visit him. And when they come to see him, they don't recognize him. They are um, very sad about what has come upon Job. And they sit with him for a full week, seven days and seven nights, and don't say anything. None spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. And so all of this time, Job has persevered. He has been upright. He hasn't complained. But after a week of sitting with his friends, Job starts to speak, and he does start to complain. In fact, he curses his birth. He says in chapter 3, verse 3, Let the day perish wherein I was born. He talks about, and this is some of the poetry of the book of Job that I'm not going to, to, to get into right now, but it's a, a wonderful thing to read, uh, and it conveys his travails, his grief. Um, and he's telling his friends how despairing he is, asking why this has happened to him. And then we learn about the responses of his friends. So in chapter 4, Eliphaz doesn't offer what I would consider to be comfort. Eliphaz says that because he is suffering affliction, it must be because he's unrighteous. Chapter 4, verse 7, Eliphaz says, Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished, being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Eliphaz, as we move forward in the story, suggests that God must be chastening him, must be correcting him. Chapter 5, verse 17, Eliphaz says, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth, therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Again, suggesting that the reason that Job is suffering is because of his unrighteousness, that, that his suffering is evidence of his unrighteousness. And Job responds, he asks why God would not pardon him um, for what he has done. He, he wonders what he's done to deserve this. He wants to know. He in chapter 6, he says, Teach me, and I will hold my tongue, and cause me to understand wherein I have erred. He wants, he asks, why God won't take away his affliction. Um, in chapter 7, verse 21, Why dost thou not pardon my transgression, and take away mine iniquity? For now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. And his friend Bildad now chimes in. 
And, and Bildad, again, offers no words of comfort. <laughs> he says, stop your pity party. It says, God isn't unjust. In chapter 8, verse 3, doth God pervert judgment or doth the Almighty pervert justice? But then Bildad says that because God's not unjust, he echoes what Eliphaz said, that because you are suffering affliction, it must be because you are unrighteous. Chapter 8, verse 6, If thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. So if you were righteous, Bildad is saying, you wouldn't be suffering. In, uh, in verse 20, he says, Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. But Job insists that there is no cause for his affliction. He doesn't deserve what's happening to him. In chapter 9, verse 17, He breaketh me with a tempest and multiplieth my wounds without cause. He complains that God has delivered the world into the hands of the wicked. Verse 24, The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covereth the faces of the judges thereof. Suggesting that God is unjust. In fact, Job says that God should justify what he's done in chapter 10. He says, verse 2, I will say unto God, do not condemn me. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. Give me an explanation. Tell me what I've done. He says that he's so confused. He doesn't understand why this is happening to him. In chapter 10, Verse 15, I'm full of confusion. And now his third friend speaks. Zophar says, again, no words of comfort. He says, you think you're so great, but you deserve what you're getting and more. In chapter 11, Zophar says, for thou hast said, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in thine eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee, and that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double with that to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. And this uh, gets Job's back up. In chapter 12, he says, he starts out by saying, Oh, you think you're so smart. Verse 2, no doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. Which I think is a little tongue-in-cheek. Uh, that He's suggesting that, uh, that Zophar believes, and that his friends believe, that they have all the wisdom. But Job says, I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you, yea, who knoweth not such things as these. He says, everybody knows that that God is great and that God punishes iniquity. You're not telling me anything that I don't know. But then Job complains again that he that God rewards the wicked and confounds human institutions. He says in verse 6, the tabernacles of robbers prosper, and they that provoke God are secure into whose hand God bringeth abundantly. In verse 17, he says, He leadeth counselors away spoiled and make the judges fools. 
He looseth the bond of kings and girdeth their loins with a girdle. So again, Job is expressing that God is rewarding the wicked and he's undermining human institutions. He then talks about how troublesome human life is and how short. In chapter 14, he says, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Verse 7, he talks about the hope of a resurrection. He says, There is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. And Job, facing the troubles of human life and the hope of resurrection, wants to be hidden in the grave until the troubles pass. In verse 13 of chapter 14, he says, Oh, that thou wouldst hide me in the grave, that thou wouldst keep me secret until thy wrath be past, that thou wouldst appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. So he wants to be freed from his troubles to hide in the grave until the resurrection. And at this point, Eliphaz really goes after Job. In chapter 15, he tells Job that his complaining is uh, uh, that he's, Eliphaz does not uh, appreciate it. He says, verse 5, For thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity, and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. Thine own mouth condemneth thee, and not I. Yea, thine own lips testify against thee. And Eliphaz insists that Job is unrighteous. In verse 14, What is man that he should be clean, and he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints, yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water. And Job says in response to this, basically, thanks for nothing. Chapter 16, verse 2, miserable comforters are ye all. Verse 4, I could also could speak as ye do. If your soul were in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you and shake mine head at you. He's saying I could be telling you where you went wrong. But he says, I wouldn't do that. In verse 5, I would strengthen you with my mouth and the moving of my lips should assuage your grief. And in response to this, in chapter 18, Bildad asks, Are you finished? Verse 2, How long will it be ere ye make an end of words? Mark, and afterwards will we speak. Saying, Are you done? Are you finished complaining? Let us know when you're finished complaining, and then then we'll talk to you. So again, his friends are offering no words of comfort. In fact, Bildad says at the end of chapter 18, Job, you don't know God. This is the place of him that knoweth not God. And Job then realizes that his friends are in fact part of his affliction. In verse 2 of chapter 19, he says, How long will you vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? Verse 19, he says, All my inward friends abhorred me, and they who I loved are turned against me. 
One thing that is, I think, very interesting to note is that Job refers to his Redeemer here. He refers to the Christ. In chapter 19, verse 25, he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. And so Job has hope, again, of a resurrection. He believes in his Redeemer, but he is still despairing. And still his friends offer no words of comfort. Zophar then suggests that Job's afflictions again are payback for his wickedness. In chapter 20, verse 29, he says, This is the portion of a wicked man from God and the heritage appointed unto him by God. And Job responds, well, the wicked actually avoid affliction in this world. He says in chapter 21, verse 7, Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? Their seed is established in their sight with them and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, neither is the rod of God upon them. So he's suggesting, Job is suggesting that the wicked prosper. Eliphaz insists that, uh, again, that he's being, he's being punished for, for uh, uh, that he's not being punished for being righteous, that he's being punished for being wicked. In chapter 22, he uh, again accuses Job. He says, will he reprove thee for fear of thee? Will he enter with thee into judgment? Is not thy wickedness great and thine iniquities infinite? And he tells Job, you need to find God. And then things will improve. In chapter 22, verse 21, he says, Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Job tells him, I've been looking for God, but I can't find him anywhere. In chapter 23, he says, Verse 8, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. And Job says a little bit earlier in this chapter that if I could find him, I'd tell him why I don't deserve this. And he'd see that I'm right. In verse 4, he says, I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. So through all of this, Job is maintaining his righteousness, and Job's friends are uh, insisting that he is unrighteous, and that's the cause of his uh, afflictions. Job, again, further on in uh, chapter 27, again, insists that he is righteous. Verse 6, my righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. He knows in his heart that he's righteous. Moving on to chapter 29, Job pines for the old days, back when he was blessed. In verse 2, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God preserved me. He talks about all the good that he did, how righteous he was. 
Verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and diadem. And I think it's important to remember when Job is talking about his righteousness, it's also important to remember that God characterized Job as upright. Three times, I believe, he characterized him as upright. And so the fact of Job's righteousness uh, is true. Whether he should be characterizing himself as righteous is a different question. But in any event, in verse 14, he talks about how he put on righteousness. 15, I was eyes to the blind and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and the cause which I knew not I searched out. And I break the jaws of the wicked and pluck the spoil out of his teeth. So Job did a lot of good. He talks about it. He talks about all the good he did. He talks about the status that he had among men. Verse 21, Unto me men gave ear and waited and kept silence at my counsel. But now Job recognizes that the tables have turned that the young folks aren't listening anymore. In chapter 30, Now they that are younger than I have me in derision, whose fathers I would have disdained to have set with the dogs of my flock. So Job used to be at the top, and now he's at the bottom. The people that he would have disdained are disdaining him. And for that, God, Job calls God cruel. He says in chapter 30, verse 21, Thou art become cruel to me. With thy strong hand thou opposest thyself against me. And he challenges God to evaluate his righteousness, to see if he deserves this treatment. Again, Job is insisting that he doesn't deserve this. Chapter 31, verse 6, Let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know mine integrity. He wants to explain, apparently, what he thinks God doesn't know. Let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know mine integrity. And at this point, his friends stop talking to him because they see that he sees himself as righteous. In chapter 32, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. They were getting nowhere, they thought. And then we meet another character, Elihu, who hasn't shown up in the story before. And Elihu was a younger man. Um, I don't know if he's one of the younger people that, that Job was disdaining, but he is a younger man, and he said that he was withholding what he had to say because these older men were speaking, and... He thought they knew what they were talking about. Verse 6 of chapter 32, he says, I am young and ye are very old, wherefore I was afraid and durst not show you mine opinion. But after hearing the whole conversation, Elihu became angry because neither Job nor his friends had found the answer. Job was justifying himself against God, and his friends couldn't answer Job's question and nevertheless condemned Job. Uh, In verse 2 
against Job was his, Elihu's wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Um, in other words, I think Job, Elihu saw as self-righteous, and his friends um, were not providing any comfort, were not providing any answer to him. None of them were correct. He says, Elihu says, all of you have gotten it wrong. Verse 12, there was none of you that convinced Job or answered his words. And he, he criticizes Job for saying that you've done nothing wrong and that you complain about your troubles and that God is your enemy. In verse 8 of chapter 33, Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy word, saying, I am clean without transgression, I am innocent, neither is there iniquity in me. Behold, he findeth occasions against me, he counteth me for his enemy. So again, he's saying that Job is holding himself as just against God. But Elihu says in verse 12, Behold, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. He says that God doesn't need to explain himself. He saves the humble. In verse 27, He looketh upon men, and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. So it's not by self-righteousness, but it is by recognizing sin that, uh, that God looks upon men favorably. And Elihu says to Job, don't think that God is somehow getting it wrong. In chapter 34, verse 10, he says, Therefore hearken unto me, ye men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. So in other words, God is not unjust. He tells Job to repent and seek understanding of how he sinned. In verse 31 of chapter 34, Surely it is meet to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement, I will not offend any more. That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. So again, to repent, to try to understand what he has done wrong and how he is uh, uh, inequitable in the, lights of, in the eye of God. And he points out, how can a man be righteous in the eye of God? God is so much greater than man. In chapter 35, verse 7, If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? What can you do for God? Job, even if you're righteous, how is that giving anything to God? In verse 8, Thy wickedness may hurt a man as thou art, and thy righteousness may profit the son of man. But Elihu points out that only God is righteous and that God is only righteous. In chapter 36, verse 3, I will fetch my knowledge from afar and will ascribe righteousness to my maker. In verse 6, he says, He preserveth not the life of the wicked, but giveth right to the poor. God is not unjust. He is righteous. 
And Elihu says that you can't understand God. Chapter 36, verse 26. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. Neither can the number of his years be searched out. That God is so great and marvelous, he can do so many amazing things, it's beyond our comprehension. Chapter 37, verse 5. God thundereth marvelously with his voice. Great things doeth he, which we cannot comprehend. God respects no man. Verse 24, men do therefore fear him. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. And then Elihu is done, and we hear from God himself. Starting in chapter 38, God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind and starts out by asking, who do you think you are? In verse 4, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? And again, this poetry is something that, that should be read. Um, I'm not going to go through it all here. I've already taken more time, I think, than I uh, have. But he goes through the many amazing things that he has done. And God asks Job whether Job has God's power. He asks about so many things that God can do that man has no power over. And at the end of this, God asks, are you planning to teach me a lesson, Job? You remember that Job wanted to make his argument to God. He wanted to show God how he was wrong. He wanted to explain to God what God didn't know. But again, God asks, are you trying to teach me a lesson? In chapter 40, verse 2, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. And at this point, Job hears. And he realizes his self-righteousness. And he realizes his place as opposed to God. He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. He is going to stop complaining, stop justifying himself to God. God then says that the proud end up with the wicked. Verse 12, look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. And God tells Job, I don't owe you or anybody else anything. Chapter 41, verse 11. Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever under the whole heaven is mine. And Job has acknowledged his failing. He has acknowledged his his inability, that God can do everything, and that it is Job, not God, who lacks understanding. And Job repents. In chapter 42, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. 
Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Hear, I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. So in declaring his understanding, his lack of understanding, Job is seeing God. And he repents in verse 6. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this is what God says is right. And he condemns Job's friends. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant servant Job hath. He says it twice. At the end of verse 8, again, he says, Ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. And this is where the Hollywood ending comes in. Now that Job has spoken the thing that is right, his wealth and his possessions come back. His body is restored. He lives for a long time. In chapter uh, 42, verse 16, after this lived Job 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. And only after that did Job die, being old and full of days. And so that is a very uh, bird's eye view of the book of Job. Again, just trying to, to grasp the narrative in one sitting, which I think can be Helpful, it was helpful for me. But I think that what I, what I take from this is that both Job and his friends claimed understanding. Job's friends claimed to understand God, to understand why Job was suffering affliction. Job claimed that he had a greater understanding than God. And both were partly right because his friends were saying you must be wicked to be suffering this affliction because God isn't unjust. And and they were correct that God is not unjust. Job was saying uh, God must not understand because I'm righteous. And we know that, that Job was righteous. But what they were both missing was claiming understanding. And that's where they went wrong. And when Job recognized his lack of understanding is when God said that he spoke what was right. Thank you very much for your attention. Praise God. I very much enjoyed what Ben had to share this morning. Um, It's often said that Job, the book of Job, is the oldest book in the Bible, the first book written... Uh, So what we get a glimpse into there is the ancient character of our faith, which is before Abraham, before Moses, before all the things in the Old Old Testament, you have the religion of Job and his interlocutors, which was informed by an oral tradition passed down since Adam. And this central tenet of God's sovereignty his prerogative over all creation 
That was there from the very beginning. And the central teaching, the central ethical claim, which is that we ought to tr- humble ourselves, be humbled, and trust in God, was there from the very beginning. And so, often when we're in debates or dialogue with other believers, we'll appeal to the church fathers or the reformers or Luther or Augustine, or maybe we'll even go back to John the Baptist. But I think it's worth noticing here that prior to even the Mosaic Law, the central tenets of the doctrines of grace were firmly in place as a matter of uh, the character of creation. Now, with what time we have left, I, I want to do a, a few things here. You know that we've been studying the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 4. We're still looking at the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. And we, we will... We're, we're going to talk about that. I'm going to, but before we do, I'd like to open out of Jeremiah chapter 11. When I was in Chattanooga, I opened out of Jeremiah chapter 9, and I looked a little bit at Jeremiah chapter 10. We were, we were looking at the concept of truth, truthfulness, and that was several weeks ago now. I, I don't know how to preach without taking into consideration you as the congregation, the moving of the Lord in history, our context, our time, and our place. And so we're going we're gonna to go to John. We're going to look at John. But I want to I frame the gospel of John and the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. I want to frame it with the first 12 verses of chapter 11 of Jeremiah. So hear ye the word of the true and living God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, hear ye the words of this covenant and speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say thou unto them, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant. Which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do them according to all which I command you. So shall ye be my people, and I will be your God. That I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day, then answered I, and said, So be it, O Lord. Then the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant, and do them. So what we have here is we have a promise from God. We have an elaboration of his covenant with man. He says, I have given you the law. I've told you what to do. You must obey this. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will give you a land of milk and honey. This is a problem. This is a promise for the Israelites of ancient Israel, but it's a promise that is for us too. the church, the true Israel, his body. It's a promise that if you do well in this life, you will be rewarded. Then the Lord says unto me, so there's God's promise, but then you have to see the way that man responds. God promises and man responds. This is how man responds. They obeyed not, verse 8, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one of them 
in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. And the Lord said unto me, a conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's not something we just do alone. It's something we conspire to do against the will of God. We work together in our iniquity. What Job said, he said that, or one of the interlocutors maybe, saying, Man drinks iniquity like water, and they are turned back to, their, to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words and went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I have made with their fathers. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. So there's God's promise. And there's man's rejection of that promise. And that's where we are in history today. I'm not going to go into the news, but if you follow it, you know where we are in history today. A wholesale rejection of our Lord, of his commandments, of righteousness, and an embrace of iniquity. A drinking of iniquity. It's an inverse. The psalm says, my cup overfloweth. And it's a blessing. And the sinner says, my cup overfloweth with iniquity. So you have God's promise. You have man's rejection. And now we return to the woman at Jacob's well, the Samaritan woman. We've, we've studied the place. We know about Jacob's well. It's still there. It is deep. If you pour, I watched a video of them pouring water into Jacob's well. You pour water and you get a beat. Two beats, three beats, four beats, and then you hear the splash at the bottom of the well. The well is deep. Our Lord brought nothing to drink from. He encounters the Samaritan woman, and he says, I am the living water. And isn't it beautiful that this story of him at the wells proclaiming, I am the living water. I will give you eternal life. You will never thirst if you drink of me. The story itself just continues to pour wisdom out upon us. It's beautiful how that works. And so, then, he says, go and fetch your husband. She says, I have no husband. You have spoken well. You have no husband, but you've had five husbands, and the one that you currently have isn't your husband. What is this? This is a revelation of the power of God, of his omniscience. I love that I'm in the sauna at the gym, and there's a caution sign. And it says... It says a bunch of things, but one of the things that it says is supervise children at all times. I don't know why you'd have children in the sauna, but supervise them at all times. The word supervision, it's a beautiful word. It means above, it means vision from above. And what we have here is an example of supervision from our Lord. He has been watching this woman her entire life, this random Samaritan woman who's played the harlot her whole life and is an outcast from the people of Judah. God's been paying attention to her specifically and knows everything about her and reveals just a sliver of this omniscience. And she says, she says, I perceive that thou art a prophet. I perceive that thou art a prophet. And so we begin to get to the central problem with man. Man is naturally preoccupied by legalism, by concerns of the world. And what you'll see is that Christ intervenes to correct us from our error. 
So we have a natural preoccupation. She says, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And this is true. He is a prophet. He's the prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. He's called a prophet all throughout scripture. And her next statement reveals her state of mind. It reveals her religious worldview. She says, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, in this mountain near Sychar. And you say, the Jews say, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So this Samaritan woman is just like us. She's an outcast from society. She's on the fringe of her community. She has to go to the well in the middle of the day because she's so ashamed of who she is. She must have been pretty thirsty to go to the well in the noontime of the Israeli year. I mean, it's, it's practically a desert. They're south of Galilee. It's hot. She's thirsty. She goes there because there's no other time she can go. She's just like us. Does anyone here have any like great power in this world? Is anyone here... Uh, really like elevated among men does anyone here uh is anyone here like extremely wealthy are you are is anyone here glorified among men no we the samaritan woman represents all of us and what is she concerned about she's concerned about where she ought to worship where she ought to worship so the question then becomes for us what matters of practice, what matters of legalism are we fretting over? Are we worried about, do we do communion the right way? Do we sing our hymns well enough? Should we have instruments in worship? Should we, uh, you know, how should baptisms be held? How should we determine church membership? Are we fretting over these matters of practice? Are we worried about these matters of practice? And I'm not saying you're wrong to be concerned, but I am saying that when this woman is standing in front of our Lord and she brings him her concerns about practice, he corrects her and instructs her on matters of doctrine. What what does Christ redirect us to? Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You say that in Jerusalem, that is the place where men ought to worship. But Jesus says unto her, Woman, believe me that the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. There will be a time when Samaritans don't worship in the mountain and they don't worship in Jerusalem either. There will be a time when the whole of the Holy Land is is drowning in pagan unbelief and will not worship God the Father. There's a time. It's coming. It might be now. This is what Christ is saying. Places come and go. Places are part of creation. They are underneath. They are, they are a, a, an, an under-concern of the believer. They're not of central concern to God. God doesn't care if you worship in the mountain. He doesn't care if you worship in the temple of Jerusalem. He says, ye worship, you know not what. 
we, the Jews, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And the particularism on display here is incredible. If you ever are deceived by universalism, remember that Christ himself looked a woman in the eyes and said, salvation is of the Jews, not of the Samaritans, of the Jews. It makes sense that you don't know what you're talking about, lady, because you weren't raised up in the context of the people who were given the Mosaic law, the laws of salvation. It's not just, it's not that salvation is just of, of the Jews at that time, but the Samaritans definitely would not have had this type of information. But that's all. His whole point is that that's all beside the point. You worship that which you do not know. The hour comes, comes and now is when the true worshipers, the true worshipers shall worship the Father in what? In spirit and in truth. The true worshipers will worship the Father not in a mountain, not in a temple, but in spirit and in truth. And so what we learn is that the doctrines that we hold dear, they are the superior concern. The, the worship of our Lord in spirit and in truth is the superior concern. It doesn't matter. Look, if they shut down the whole state of Maryland, if they say you can't go to that church building anymore, guess what? This church body will assemble. We will not forsake the assembly. Maybe not all of us, and we will learn. We will learn. But this church, this called out assembly is called out by God. And that call is an irresistible call. This church, this body will assemble under the only authority that exists in heaven or in earth that can stop this body from assembling is God. True worshipers, true worshipers, people of the way. That's what we used to call ourselves, people of the way. Christian was a diminutive. We, it was an insult and we adopted it. We'll worship in spirit and in truth. The mountain and the temple are just places. Spirit and truth, these are the places that God is really concerned about. Romans 5 says, and I know I'm over time. I'll try to keep it short. Romans 5 says, we're justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, into, like it's a place, into this grace wherein we stand. So this place that is greater than the temple, greater than the mountain, this place where there is spirit and there is truth is a place where we have access to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ by grace. By grace. So what have we, what have we learned here? We've learned that God gives a promise. Man rejects the promise. Man comes with a counteroffer. Man's counteroffer is, let me uh, worship you in the temple or maybe in the mountain. And, and maybe we'll sacrifice some animals. What do you say to that, God? And what does God do with that counteroffer? He instructs us more perfectly in the doctrines of grace. Man is naturally preoccupied by legalism. Man is naturally preoccupied by matters of place and of practice, but God intervenes, Christ intervenes to correct us in our air. We've established we are unable to worship as we ought to, as we ought to worship, to think as we ought to think. And what are we holding on to? 
What are we personally, individually holding on to? What are we fretting about? Are we fretting about the form of the baptism or the form of the communion or the form of the song service or the form of the ordination? Are we fretting about these things of practice? Well, let us ask God to expose these worries and these frets. Let's, Let's ask God to expose us Expose these idols, these idols of practice that we cling to, these idols of tradition that we cling to, and let us beg him to correct us and instruct us more perfectly so that we may worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen.